want to shout out everybody who's joining us in Pewaukee or on our online campus, wherever you're at today. We're glad that you are here. And those of you in the room with us here in Waukesha. Hey, my name is Garrett, and I get to help lead our next-gen team. And we got some fun stuff coming up for kids and teenagers this summer that I want to make you aware of real quick. Happening in June, we've got our River Glen Youth Conference. It's for any incoming middle schoolers or graduated high schoolers, everybody in between. Uh, we would love for you to come hang out with us in June. It's overnight here at the church, guest speakers, good food, excursions. It's going to be a blast. And then happening in July, we've got our kids sports camp happening again. Great opportunity for your kids to not just grow in their relationships with one another, but also in their knowledge of who Jesus is, who they are, and they get to learn a cool sport while they're at it. So great opportunities we want to make you aware of. Come chat with us. Come find me hanging out in the lobby after service. If you have any questions on getting your kids or teenagers connected. But this week, we are continuing in a series that we've called Big questions. Ben kicked us off last week with an important question. Why do we get stuck in our faith? And I love this series because I think it's important that we ask questions. I think so often it can feel like maybe we're not allowed to have questions or like doubt is a disqualifier to following Jesus. And that's just not the case, right? He welcomes us just as we are with our questions, with our concerns, with our doubts. And so it's okay to have questions. So we want to wrestle with some of these over the next few weeks. I want to talk to you this week about a book. You've probably heard of this book. Maybe some of you have this book. Maybe you've got a physical copy. You've got one on your iPad or whatever. This book is a famous book. It's been translated into over 700 languages and counting. Uh, it is the number one selling book every single year and of all time. That's right, Twilight. No, I'm kidding. It's the Bible. It's the Bible, not Twilight. Team Edward. But it is the Bible. And when we talk about the Bible, many questions can come up, right? There's a lot of questions that pop up when we think of the Bible. Is it true? Can we trust this thing? What's going on with the Bible? And those are fair because the Bible, while it is one big book, there's a lot more to it. The Bible is actually 66 books in one. There's historical accounts, there's poetry, there's letters full of different things. It, it crosses a span of 1,500 years, roughly. And there's 40 different authors who have written this book, who've helped compose this book that we read. It's also written in three different languages. The original, right? Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, not King James English, if that's what you've heard, right? That's not what it was written in. That's not what Jesus spoke. And while we're on the subject, if you're curious, hey, what's a good translation for me? There are so many Bible translations out there. Some of the ones that we use on a weekend are NIV, the NLT. This weekend, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. So those are just a few. There's a lot of translations out there, but that's what you'll hear with us on a weekend. And it crosses 30 different continents. This book covers a lot. And so it's fair that there comes some questions, that some questions pop up, and there's some weird stuff in it, right? Can we all be, be honest? If you've maybe done a Bible reading plan, you probably quit somewhere around February, March. You're like, it got a little weird there in, in Leviticus. I don't know what that's about, but it gets weird. There's, there's weird stuff, right? I remember when I was in college, I was away at school, and my dad texted me one morning. He just sent me a scripture reference, and I thought, oh, man. 
That's so nice. Thanks, Dad. And then I looked this verse up, 2 Kings 2, 23. This, this is what it says. As he was walking along the road, Elisha, a group of boys from the town began mocking and making fun of him. Go away, baldy, they chanted. Go away, baldy. Elisha turned around, looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. From there, Elisha went on to Mount Carmel. Okay, all right, thanks, Dad. Yeah, super encouraging, feeling good for the day. Thanks for sending me that. Like, what do we do with stuff like that? What do we do with verses? And if we, if we don't read the Bible in its proper context, I'd be in trouble for being up here. I ate pork this week. I have tattoos, and my clothes are made of linen. This would be so bad for all of us that this is happening. And that's why it's so important that we read the Bible in its proper context, that we interpret it well. It's important for us to know that the Bible was written for us, not to us. The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. It was written to a specific group of people at a specific time. There's still some things, though, that we can pull from it that, that are important to us. But unfortunately, sometimes we spend too much time debating non-essentials. It's easy. I know it's easy for me to get caught up in the things that don't really matter to the main story that this book is trying to get at. Like, you know, how did, you know, was it really a whale that swallowed Jonah? Or how did Jesus turn that Lunchable into 5,000 meals? Or how do you get a lion and a zebra to get along, right? Like, we can get so caught up in these things, start debating one another. And that's not the point. That's not the purpose. I love this quote from uh, theologian Rupertus Meldenius. He says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials or secondary matters, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. That's the church that we want to be. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. Because while it is 66 books in one written over 1,000 plus years in 40, 40 different authors, multiple languages, it is about one guy, and his name is Jesus. It is one love story about a God who loved you and me so much that he sent his son for us. It's about a guy named Jesus who showed up not to debate in the minute things, but he showed up to heal the sick. He came to feed and serve the poor. He came to love the outcast. That's what this book is about. And we want to keep that the main purpose. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's Jesus. That's who John's talking about. He's talking about Jesus, the living word. And so for our time together, I just want to share with you four things that I think help prove that the Bible is what it claims to be. Things that I have discovered that have encouraged me and some things that I just find super fascinating. Four things that help prove the Bible. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, all scripture... It's breathed out by God. It's profitable, right? It's good. It's good for teaching. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction and for training in righteousness. Following Jesus, Paul saying, hey, this book is going to be your guide. This is going to be your guide to joy, to peace, to wisdom, right? This is what that book is all about. So let's start with our first one, historical evidence of 
the Bible, historical evidence. It's fair to ask, well, this book was written so long ago. How can we trust, right, if it's the validity of this thing over so much time? So what I want to do, I want to compare the New Testament specifically the Gospels, there's the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I want to compare those books to some famous documents or books that we have in in our history. We would say, yes, these things are trustworthy and true. And I want to compare, there's one thing I want to compare. I want to compare the the gap between the original manuscript and the copies that we have, okay? From the original manuscript when they're written to the copies that we got. You tracking with me? All right, let's jump in. Here we go. Works of Plato. So we're going to start here. Works of Plato. We have about seven manuscripts. Now, the gap from when they were originally written to what we have when we receive them is about 1,250 years, 1,250 years. That's a pretty wide gap between the original manuscript. The second one, Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar. Maybe you've read this, maybe you've heard of it. We have about 10 manuscripts, and the gap between the original to the copies we have is about a thousand year difference. There's a thousand years in between there from when we receive those. The third one, Homer's Iliad, 1800 manuscripts. Okay, Homer, all right, he's got 1800, and his is a little better, 400 years. So there's a 400 year period between the original and the copies we have. Check out the Gospels. The Gospels, there's roughly 6,000 manuscripts out there. And the difference, the gap between the original manuscript and the copies that we have is only 50 years. It's only a 50-year gap between the original manuscripts and the copies that we have. And the scribes who wrote these were so precise in translating the Bible, in, 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 in making copies for us. They were so precise that they would cut their writing block into a grid. They would then place every letter into a square. And then when it was done, they would take the scroll and they would read through it. And if there was one letter, one thing off, they wouldn't just crumble it up and throw it away. They would burn them. Because they were so adamant. They didn't want there to be anything out there roaming around in the world that would be different from the original manuscript. The difference is because most of the things that we read in the New Testament were all written by eyewitnesses. People who walked with Jesus. People who knew Jesus. People who had a personal relationship with him. And most things that scholars have doubted or have been like, man, can we trust this in the Bible? That seems like it was made up. Most of those things have all been debunked by archaeological finds and discoveries. One scholar says this, it can be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted the Bible. Everything that we discover, everything that we find just continues to prove that this book is, in fact, true. Let's jump to the second one. That is the scientific 
evidence, the scientific evidence of the Bible. I was not good in science class. Anybody else with me? Science was not my subject. When I actually moved here, I was still finishing my degree, and so I had to finish some classes online, and one of those, to graduate, I had to finish a science class, and they would send me lab kits to my house. I remember one afternoon, I was dissecting owl pellets at the kitchen table. So gross. My wife was not very happy about that, but I had to do it. Had to do it. Had to pass science class. So science, right, wasn't a big fan, but came across this discovery that blew me away. And it's a little weird, okay? So bear with me. Let's take it out. All right, Genesis 17. That's where we're going to be, okay? It says, from generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. God is the one who introduces circumcision in Genesis. The reason for this is that God is building a relationship with the Israelite people. He's trying to set them apart. Rather, they would be different from the other people groups, other nations and tribes. He wants to make them different. So circumcision for them was a physical representation of a spiritual, personal relationship between them and God, right? That's where circumcision gets introduced, okay? Let's fast forward Thousands of years later, this isn't long ago in history, scientists recently discovered that inside of your body, there is a protein called prothrombin, okay? Somebody say that with me, prothrombin, right? There's a protein, if there's a doctor in here, I might be saying it wrong, but there's this protein in your body that helps your blood to clot properly so that when you are cut, you can heal properly, right? The Mayo Clinic says that it is produced in your liver and it pairs with vitamin K. These two things working together keep you from bleeding out and dying when you are cut. And back then, right, this was needed because they didn't have surgeons and doctors. They didn't have stuff like that. And so prothrombin, vitamin K working together, that would have been essential to certain cuts or wounds, such as circumcision, Scientists discovered not long ago, it was just a few years ago, scientists discovered that in a male's body, in a male's body, there is one day in his life where prothrombin and vitamin K together are at their peak. Can you guess what day it is? It is the eighth day. See, so often we try to pit God and science against each other. I say that science and God, that they're at odds, that they are so different from each other. But what if God and science weren't at odds with each other? What if God was just so far ahead of our time? What if things in the Bible were so far ahead of what science is just now discovering? You know the Bible was the first one to claim that the globe is floating in space, held up by nothing? Everyone else in history, in early history, believed that something was holding it up. I love this one scientist. He said, science is just thinking God's thoughts after him. So maybe, just maybe, this book is true. Maybe God was so far ahead of its time. Maybe he knew something that scientists, maybe he knows something that we will discover years later. Let's jump to the next one, prophetic evidence. My third one, the prophetic evidence of the Bible. In the Old Testament, God would speak through prophets, 
right? He would have these messengers who would deliver a message for him. And oftentimes they would tell of future events, specifically about a coming king named Jesus. And these weren't just like hypotheticals. They were specific, right? They would tell of where he would be born. They would tell of what he would do. They would describe how he would even die. And then hundreds of years later, Jesus shows up on the scene and he fulfills these prophecies. Hundreds of them, by the way. Jesus fulfills these prophecies that years before were spoken of him. And many of us are thinking, well, what are the chances that that could happen, right? The chance that he fulfills hundreds is nearly impossible. So let's just say eight, okay? Can we all, let's take the number eight and ask, what are the chances that Jesus would fulfill only eight prophecies about him? The number is so large, I don't even know how to say it. It's one in 10 to the 17th. That's 17 zeros. That's 10 with 17 zeros. That's the chance that Jesus would only fulfill eight, and he fulfilled hundreds. It would be like this. It would be like if I took this silver dollar and I said, hey, we're going to cover the entire state of Texas in silver dollars. It's going to be about 10 to the 17th amount, right? 10 to 17 zeros. That's how many silver dollars are going to cover the state of Texas. It's going to be about two feet deep, okay? You tracking with me? So you're walking through Texas two feet deep in silver dollar coins. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, yeah, let me collect it. But here's the thing. Let's say I took this one and I marked it just a little mark on it, and then I flipped it into the state of Texas. We stirred it all together, and then I said, all right, you got one shot. Go grab that one. Those are the chances that Jesus would only fulfill eight of the hundred of prophecies that he fulfilled about himself. Is that fascinating? That's impossible. That's miraculous. I mean, the evidence is there. Historically, this book is accurate. Scientifically, this book is ahead of its time. Prophetically, this book is near impossible. This book is miraculous. And for some of us, we're sitting here right now thinking, that's cool and all, but if we're being honest, for some of us, that's not good enough. Yeah, the historical evidence is there. Scientific, that's all fun, cool, silver dollar coins, fun story. But it's not enough for us. Because maybe for you, it could be true, but you don't want to submit your life over to a book, to a God who wants to tell you what to do and tell you how to live. You want to do life your own way. You want to find pleasure and fulfillment in the things of, the, of this world. And you're saying, no, 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 I'm going I'm to do me. I'm going to chase after what makes me happy. I don't need a book to tell me what to do. Maybe you're thinking, okay, that, that, that sounds all fun and cool and, and, and whatever. But, but how does that explain why a good God would let all these terrible things happen to me in my life? Or maybe you're just so bewildered that there's a God out there who would love you so much. And you're thinking, man, if only you knew the things that I've done and the pain that I carry and the shame that I hold on to. How could I believe, how could I actually trust that there's a God out there who loves me? And this leads me into my, my fourth and, and final point for us. 
And that is the personal evidence of the Bible. The personal evidence of the power of God's word. See, many of us don't trust the Bible. It's there. Maybe we go to it when we need it, but we don't really trust it. And here's the thing. We've never actually tried it. We've never actually given it a chance. Some of us say, I don't believe it. I'm not going to follow it. But we've never tried it. We've never opened it up. We've never let God speak to us through his word. We've never said, I'm going to submit to this thing. I'm going to follow this thing and hope that it works out. We've never given it a shot. The author of Hebrews says it this way about the, the, the Bible. He says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any other two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active. This living and active book, man, it changed my life. I grew up in the church. I grew up trying to get the perfect attendance, checked off Sunday school. I grew up knowing all the songs, memorizing all the memory verses. But somewhere toward the end of my high school time and the beginning of college, I fell into this double life. I got caught up in the party scene and I was hanging out with people I barely knew, doing things I knew I shouldn't have been doing. I was either sneaking in late at night, hoping not to get caught, that anyone would see me or smell what was on me. I was, ho I was hopefully just crashing at random people's houses because either I couldn't drive home or I was too ashamed of the consequences that awaited me. Saturday night, Garrett was a very different person from Sunday morning. Then I got an opportunity to go intern with this church, which is kind of ironic because I was incredibly unqualified. And I spent that summer at a camp for a week hanging out with some high school guys, getting to know them and watching them for the first time encounter Jesus. Watching them for the first time experience the living, breathing and active word of God. And it shook something in me. It set me on this trajectory to turn from my current life and fully pursue Jesus. Say, God, I'm in wholeheartedly, whatever that means. And it was hard. It was a lot of work. I lost my best friends. I lost my girlfriend at the time. And I gave up on career plans and dreams that I had for my life. For the first time, I was having this personal relationship with Jesus. And about a year after that, after a lot of mentorship, a lot of prayer, and some clear signs from God, I packed everything up. I moved across the country to go study the Bible and pursue ministry. I didn't really know what that would look like. I didn't really know what that meant. But as I fell more in love with Jesus... As I began to see who he was and who I was because of him, I subsequently fell more in love with his word. Finding peace that it offered in anxiety, finding joy that it offered in difficulty, finding strength that it offered, finding wisdom that it offered for my life. The historical, scientific, prophetic, they're cool. 
They're pillars in our faith. Those things are really, really special. But the personal evidence, the personal relationship with Jesus, spending time with him, studying his word, opening this book up and saying, God, show me yourself, that transformed my life, and I believe that it could transform yours too. But you got to give it a chance. Matthew 7 says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And I love this in Jeremiah 29. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Friends, God is waiting for us to crack open this book and say, God, I'm going to give you a shot. Maybe it's sitting down and asking, hey, would you reveal yourself to me through your word? Would you show me yourself? They say it takes 66 days, a couple months to build a habit. Commit a couple months. Give God a couple months. Say, all right, every day I'm going to try to find time to spend time with him, to open his book, to go research, to go study some things, to go try to find answers to these questions and doubts that I have. Give him a couple months. Ask and you receive. Knock and the door will be opened. See, if it's historically accurate, if it's scientifically ahead of its time, if it's prophetically miraculous and personally transformative, then maybe, just maybe, God knows what he's talking about when he asks us to live according to it, to follow this book, to make it the thing that we build our lives on. So I want to challenge you, just a few things. The first is to get a Bible. To get a Bible. We have a table full of Bibles in the lobby. They're for you. If you don't have a Bible, go grab one. That, that Bible is yours to keep. Crack it open. Give it a read. That's my second one. Start reading. Maybe you have a physical copy. You don't have one. Maybe you want to download the Version app on your phone. There's a lot of options out there. But start reading it. There's a ton of plans on the Version app. I would recommend if you're going to open up the, the, the Bible, maybe a physical copy, I would maybe start in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Pick one of those. And read about the life of Jesus. Discover who he is and who you are because of him. Maybe you just want to read a psalm every day. I'm going to read a psalm a day. That's going to be my prayer. And and you want to carry that with you. Get a Bible. Start reading. And then maybe for you, man, you just got to be around some people who could challenge you, who could strengthen you. So we want to encourage you to join a big questions group. They kicked off this week, but it is not too late. Every week, they're diving in deeper to the questions that we are asking here on the weekend. We've got them going on Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. You can get info at the Connect Wall or on our website. Join a group. Start chatting with some people. We're going to close out service in just a moment, and we're going to close with a song. And as I was prepping for the message this week, a line in this song really caught me. It says this, I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. A billion's a big number. That's a huge number. You know how big the number one billion is? I mean, a million's a big number. You know, 
If you were to start right now counting to one million, saying a number every second, you know how long it would take you? It would take you 11 and a half days to count to one million. Let's go even bigger. A billion. You know how long it would take you to count to one billion? 32 years you'd be counting. Get ready for this one. You want to go trillion? One trillion. How long do you think it would take you to count to one trillion? You would be counting for 32,000 years to get to one trillion. Let's get even crazier. Inside of your one body, there are over 30 trillion cells. And every single one has a purpose. Every single one has been placed inside of you for a reason. Why? Because you were uniquely designed by a creator who has a plan and a purpose for your life. Psalm 139 says this, yes, you shaped me inside then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul are marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. And this book, the Bible, is a love story about a God who loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to take on the sin and shame of the world so that you and your 30 plus trillion cells could have a relationship with him. That is what this book is about. It's about a man named Jesus who loved you so much. It's about a God who created you, who made you on purpose, for a purpose, and he's inviting you to open up his word and say, God, show me yourself. I believe it's true. I believe it's reliable. I believe it's trustworthy. And friends, I believe that you are living proof. So give him a shot. Give him a chance. Ask him trust that your way is better, that your book can serve as the foundation to our lives. God, creation cries out to you and we want to join in we want to worship you we want to thank you God maybe for the first time we want to discover you and we want to encounter you so God I pray that you would reveal yourself to us it's in your name we pray amen